Times and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas. Today with episode 453, and we're going to do a call-in Friday. The show is delayed. Uh, more about that in a minute. I want to tell you about some of the things that uh, we're actually going to be talking about today, though. First, I got great questions from you. Ironically, when I tell you what's been going on during the housekeeping, one is on backup power. I've got some questions on great books for new people starting out. I've got some good first aid tips uh, for out in the bush or out in a shit hit the fan with uh, involving things like coffee. I've got some questions on gray versus black water and how they can be used or not used, depending on what we're talking about. I've got a consequence of a volcanic eruption in Iceland uh, that even though it happened a long time ago, uh, has actually caused, uh, this is an old call, but a consequence I never knew about. I've got a lot of great stuff. They're all from your calls. And one thing that's really cool is I put out an alert on Facebook as I was getting ready this morning and said, uh, hey, if you get a question in the next 15, 25 minutes, I'll try to include it on the air. Three came in. All three were good questions. All three are on today's show. So I might be doing that a lot more uh, in the future. So you might want to consider becoming uh, our fan on Facebook, on our Facebook fan page for the Survival Podcast, so you can participate in things like that. Or hook up with me on Twitter, because I put that alert out on Twitter as well. All right, uh, before we do get into your questions, though, uh, I want to uh, remind you about uh, our sponsors of the day, as always, during our housekeeping segment. Sponsor of the day number one is the Berkey Guy with Berkey Light Water Filter Systems. Folks, there's one thing that you will die without quicker than just about anything else, other than maybe shelter if you're in harsh conditions, and that is water. The body can go an awful long time without food. Uh, we've seen the results where people went on hunger strikes for very long periods of time and survived. We've not seen people go on long-term water strikes. You don't drink, you die. That's how it works. So clean, uh, available water at all times is important. And even the water that you're drinking out of your faucet may contain things that you really wish it didn't, like uh, fluoride uh, that is extracted through industrial processes out of smokestacks. Yes, that's her story. Um, and some other things like that. And uh, if you use water filtration from the Berkey guy, you get that stuff out of the water you're drinking today, and you're prepared to be able to make clean, drinkable water available tomorrow. So check the Berkey guy out. Uh, remember, you get some free sport bottles from them if you're in the member support brigade with any order, no minimum required. You just have to call those orders in to get your free stuff if you are in the members brigade. Next up is backyard food production with uh, Marjorie down there somewhere in the southern area south of Austin. That's as specific as I'll be on her location at her request. But she's got a really cool operation down there. The water harvesting that she does alone is absolutely amazing. The way she shaped the land, the uh, food production operation she's put in place. The community that she's built of support around it is pretty cool. You want to learn about all of that, check out their DVD from Backyard Food Production. I'll tell you what, it'll be something you'll watch a hell of a lot more than one time. I mean, I've watched it at least ten times. It's probably about time for me to watch that sucker again and see what I forgot to remember that was in there. It's that information rich. Uh, also, again, as I mentioned earlier, connect with us on Facebook, connect with us on Twitter, connect with us on YouTube, and all that good stuff. 
So I've been doing a lot of YouTube videos lately, but I've really got into the Facebook and Twitter thing. I finally uh, finally get it, folks. So you guys that use those mediums, I'll be communicating with you uh, with those a lot. Uh, on Facebook, now that I've got the whole fan page thing figured out, figured out that there's over 2,000 of you guys that are my fan, uh, and how to how to make that work, because uh, sorry guys, I just never was a early adopter of Facebook. You're probably better off becoming a fan of Survival Podcast than connecting with me as my friend. Uh, not that I won't accept your friend request or anything, but I'm doing most of my communication with the audience through the fan page now. So if you are a friend but not a fan, become a fan. Uh, last but not least, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. Do that, you'll get exclusive content available only to members, uh, along with uh, a whole bunch of other great stuff. Discounts from about 20 supporting vendors uh, that range anywhere from 7% to some vendors as much as 50% off uh, various offers and items. Some people do a special offer for one or two things. Some do a, you know, a blanket percentage off everything in their store. Lots of great stuff there. DVDs from Ron Hood discounted. Uh, discounts from ShelfReliance.com. Uh, free lifetime membership to the Discount Club at Safe Castle Royal. You can either pay 29 bucks for that, join my MSB for $50 a year, get it for free. Uh, free premium membership in Western Botanicals, 25% off everything for life there. Uh, that's $50 a year if you buy it from them, or if you're an MSB member, you get it for free. So you get how it works. There's a lot of cool stuff there. Over $100 worth of free ebooks. So the MSB is a great way to support the show at $0.20 cents an episode and get a great return on your investment. Uh, a couple things I want to add into the housekeeping. We'll make it go a little bit longer, but I'm going to try to make it short. But these are important things. Number one, I want to remind you, we now have a chat room at the forum. We have a chat room at the forum. Uh, you can find the chat board there uh, on the forum. And uh, when you click to enter that board, you just go straight into the chat room. The chat room is cool. Your participation will make it better. I'm thinking about doing chats with Jack. I don't know when or what time would be best for that. But it might even be something I do like on a Saturday morning, like Saturday morning from 8 to 9 central. I guarantee I'll be in or something like that. We'll have to figure out. Sometimes I'm away for weekends, so that may not work. But we're going to try to make a regular scheduled time where uh, you can communicate with the host through our chat room. I'm going to try to do a lot more to stay in touch with the audience beyond the show. Uh, harnessing into the social media chat rooms and everything else like that. I try to be as accessible as I can. Uh, no matter how big the show gets, I want to stay that way. Things like the chat let me communicate with a lot of people at once. Facebook, a lot of people at once. That type of thing, but still keep it personal. I also want to tell you we're done with taking pictures for the video. I'll be working on the video this weekend, going through the pictures, picking out. You know, I can only fit so many in, but the best ones I can find that I can fit in. And we'll try to get the video of the Revolution is You out uh, next week. Next I got so much help on the server, so many people with ideas, suggestions, hosts. Uh, I just want to re reiterate, we're good now. We, we've come to a solution. Uh, HostGator stepped up. They made it right. Uh, they're not a show sponsor. I'm not going to do that. But if you want to know how much, um, I, I have decided that I appreciate what they did to make the situation right. If you go to the survivalpodcast.com right now, look at the bottom, you'll see their uh, banner. It'll stay below the actual official show, show sponsors but it will be on the site and available there. And I'll tell you what, if you need hosting, if you use, go to HostGator, you don't have to go through a link or anything. If you use the, uh, the, the discount code SURVIVALPODCAST, you'll get $9.96 off your first payment, whatever it is. So um, I'm really happy with HostGator. just want you guys to know that because they've really stepped up and done it right. And uh, with that, uh, I guess we're ready to go, except i got to tell you about what happened this morning. Power went out. So the power went out about two seconds before I was going to start doing the show, 
and I could have run a backup power. I have a backup power system, but I only have that tied into my laptop docking station because it uses less power than the desktop. When you make a phone call, and if you want to be on this show, right, in a show like this, call 866-65-THINK, and uh, we'll see if we can get you on the air. When that happens, you go into a desktop computer. That, that's one of the things that gets filtered out over to that machine because it's not something I deal with every day. I do my screening there, and then I transfer you over uh, to the, the computer that I do this show on so that I can feed you in and edit you in. Well, I didn't want to try to have to run wires back to that desktop or anything like that to make that happen, and I didn't want to fire the generator up because what happened is some ass clowns uh, just about two blocks away from here were doing underground drilling, and they hit a line, and there were whoopee lights going and all, so I knew it was going to be fixed, so I didn't want to be a bad neighbor, and I've got a neighbor that you know, works nights, and I didn't want to keep him up with the generator running over this or, or anything like that. So that's why there was a delay, and I took the time and went and mailed out some packages and had lunch with my son. It's a late show on Friday, but let's go ahead and take your questions. So here we go with our first question, and again, if you want to hear yourself on the air, 866-65-THINK. And I'm really going to try to do a lot of the stuff where that mor in the morning of a show like this, I hit you on Facebook and say, hey, you got 40 minutes here, whatever, to get questions in. So make sure you're tied in that way, too. Here we go with our first question. This is Mike. Iowa. A couple other thoughts, uh, two unrelated. Uh, one, I'm, I'm enjoying your uh, shows on uh, money issues. I must say I'm way behind the curve on these things. I had an idea a while back, a real serious idea, why the um, American Revolutionary War came to an end. I think that the uh, Crown and the and the bankers got together and said, hey, we're getting our butts kicked, seriously, and, you know, we're not selling these people money, and if we made peace with them, we everything would become nice, <laughs> and we'd all remember our common heritage, and we could sell them money. And I think uh, that may, in fact, be a huge amount of what ended the American Revolution. Um, the other thing uh, pertained to uh, some natural stuff, uh, in the event of an allergic response way out in the boonies, a little bit of freeze-dried coffee right under the tongue with a bit of moisture in it will absorb sublingually, and you'll get some caffeine uh, into your bloodstream directly through the capillary beds, just like, um, you know, nitro works. Also, I've seen some documentaries on the use of plantain leaves, toxic spider bites, including... Um, uh, recluse, uh, where they just mash up the leaves, make a paste, put it on the wound. Uh, there's a couple of things. I've never seen it done personally, but I've seen some uh, photographic uh, uh, histories of it. Very fascinating to watch. It looks legitimate. A uh, couple thoughts for the day. Um, thanks for your good show, and take care. Okay, folks. Well, that was a great call from Mike, and it, it sounded a little bit weird at the front. He was on a cell phone or something, and the initial bit of his... Uh, call broke up, so I just cut out about maybe 15 seconds of this call, but I'm glad the whole call didn't break up, because what a great call. Let's start out with uh, Mike's postulations about the Crown making a decision to withdraw from the American Revolution and, 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 and let it go uh, for monetary issues. It's uh, not totally wrong. It's not totally right. It's not that simple. It's not that cut and dry. Uh, initially, after the American Revolution ended, um, uh, the crown was out of the business of anything to do with American currency. 
but one of the first central banks ever of the United States was quickly set up, and it wasn't until after the War of 1812 where it was dismantled by Andrew Jackson, and this nation had a relatively free currency uh, with a few attempts to recentralize uh, all the way up through the Civil War. Um, but to give you an idea of how that stuck around, during the Civil War, I can't remember the aid, but there was a Lincoln aide that was somewhat actually of, of a, uh, he was actually a cabinet member, and he was somewhat of a, a Southern sympathizer um, from the standpoint of slavery. He wasn't really all bought into the abolitionist movement, and he was having conversations with the British government during the time, and I can't remember exactly who this is, so you can't pin me down, but I do know this is a verified source, that there was basically a transmission or a, uh, a letter between he and, and, and a source over in the British government that basically said, let the slavery thing go, don't worry about it. Uh, when, we enslave, when you enslave people, you have to um, provide for their housing and their food and their, their welfare. Maybe not very well, but you have to feed them, you have to clothe them, and you have to put a roof over their head. If you, monet if you enslave them with money, then they have to feed and clothe and house themselves, and the new way will be better. Uh, and I'm paraphrasing there, but that basically went on. And, of course, in 1913, we got the Federal Reserve. And despite all of the hoopla made where they say, well, there's no international banks that are part of the Federal Reserve. Uh, there are U.S. banks that are internationally owned that are part of the Federal Reserve. Uh, those can go back to people like the Wahlbergs, the Rothschilds, uh, and things like that. So, yes, our, our, our money is now, once again, in the hands of the international bankers, uh, or banksters, as they're called by Gerald Salente. And it's a pretty astute observation. And, again, you're not wrong there. Uh, the next thing on the coffee, I've never heard that before. Uh, it sounds to me like it would be reasonable, like it would work. I know that, like, for instance, a person that has an allergic reaction to bee stings that carries around a bee sting kit, the primary thing they inject in themselves is actually adrenaline. And it is adrenaline that, uh, that helps with that allergic reaction. Um, so a stimulant would seem to have some benefit toward an allergic reaction. I don't think I would... Uh, partake of that in exclusion of proper medical care, but if you had nothing else available and you had some coffee available, especially with a mild allergic reaction, you might want to check that out. In fact, I would say that maybe this will be something that I might self-experiment with, and if I ever have any kind of a mild allergic reaction where I know I'm not in any real danger, maybe I'll try a little bit of sublingual coffee and uh, just see if I have any perceived effect from that. Uh, good, interesting one to know. The plantain thing I'm very familiar with. There are... Um, there's, there's three things that I am likely to use as a drawing agent uh, with a wound uh, or a bite or any type of infection uh, that I would go to first that are relatively easy to find, and all three, I believe, work well individually, and all three seem to work very well put together, and those are comfrey, uh, planting, uh, plantain, and uh, uh, pot marigold, also known as calendula. Uh, and those three are beautiful drawing agents. In fact, I have a video that I owe you guys uh, from some stuff that uh, Dr. Kyle Christensen over at Western Botanical sent me, uh, basically using those components to make a drawing agent uh, mixed up with uh, beeswax and everything to make a solve uh, for acting as a drawing agent. And I just need to get that done for you guys, especially now they have the new mic. But plantain is, uh, is really one of those wonder plants. I remember my grandfather... Um, when I was a very young boy, I remember he had cut his finger and it got kind of infected, and he just took a couple of plantain leaves and uh, wrapped it around that wound and then put a Band-Aid over it. He did that for two or three days, and the, the infection went away and the wound healed, and I've never forgotten that. And uh, because of that, it's been something that's kind of been kind of a go-to herbal first aid for me for a long time. So definitely a great call. 
Uh, sorry we missed about 20 seconds of it, but it was really about a call he had made earlier anyway. Uh, sorry it broke up there, but I'm glad you didn't break up. That's an old call uh, from several months ago. Glad to have you with us there, Mike. And uh, let's go ahead and take another caller. Uh, hello, Jack. This is Chad in Montana. My question is twofold. Um, first, um, about the oil spill, uh, spill, more like a gush in the Gulf of Mexico. Um, what do you uh, think we're going to see for uh, fuel prices? Um, I'm hearing a uh, possibility of um, the prices going up past five dollars, uh, maybe even as high as eight. Um, um, so I really don't think it'd be a good idea to get in, uh, spend my money on a new automobile, which brings me to the the second part of my question. Um, what what should I uh, prepare with? As in, um, I know you're not really popular on this, but um, uh, bugging out like more than like a three day bag, and uh, we're just walking up into the mountains. Um, I see about um, uh, I think about eighty percent of people in Montana are asleep. And uh, the, if a food shortage occurs, um, I think the best thing to do is just be walk away. But anyways, thank you, Jack. All right, bye. Well, Chad, those are good questions, and uh, let's take them in two parts, because they're really two very different questions, even though you've linked them uh, from a standpoint of a cause and effect. The uh, the oil spill and its, its repercussions as to gas pricing, um, you haven't seen gas go up yet, and you, this question is actually pretty old. And so Chad called in maybe over a month ago and asked this question, and it still really haven't seen gas prices go up very much. A little bit, but I mean, not enough that you'd say this is why. And yet we have oil drilling shut down in the Gulf, and you wonder, well, how is that not affecting everything? Because here's the reality. Every time that there's a storm or something and one rig gets jacked up or whatever, and they jack oil up overnight, it's a scam. Because it takes a long time from the time you pump oil out of the ground and get it through the refining process and actually put it out on the street as gasoline a very long time. Especially in a, a well that's not producing yet. When you're getting to a point where you're hitting the oil but you're not really set up, you're not really pumping yet, you might be, but the oil coming out of that well turning into gasoline might be two, two and a half years away. So even the, the, the shutdown hasn't had that big of an effect on the supply of oil right now. There's actually a surplus of oil because the global economy is still in uh, a recession, whether anybody wants to admit that or not. So the demand is down, creating somewhat of a glut in oil. And so the price increases will come sooner or later from this, this delta, this, 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 this pinch off. But not until the reserves that are sitting out there make their way through the re refining process and get burnt and excreted through your tailpipes. That's why it's not yet. How high could it go? Depends on what the ass clown president does. Depends on how long this moratorium on offshore drilling lasts. You know, it's not really a moratorium because they're drilling their ass off right now on that relief well to stop the, uh, the, the uh, explosion. What you might see is that in the future, they may require before they actually start pumping oil uh, for wells to have relief wells, not just relief valves. That might be something that would drive the price up. But if we keep the moratorium, where do I think gas prices are going to go? 
About five bucks, and that's the best guess I have right now. And that's a disaster for an economy, especially one in the uh, in in the attempted uh, recovery spot that we are right now. We see attempted false recovery, but that's what I see. Do I see eight? No, not out of this. Uh, if something else agitates it, and there's a lot of times there's, you know, when it rains, it pours, things come in threes, thoughts like that, cliches that tend to be true. Uh, let's say that we have a big catastrophe, or let's say that the Arabs decide this would be a good time for an oil embargo like we had in the 70s, then you'll see eight bucks in the United States at least. Absolutely. So, um, and you won't see any kind of alternative energy uh, pressure relief anytime soon, so it's a real concern. But I would say if I saw gas prices in early um, 2011 at 450 to $5 national average, it wouldn't surprise me at all. I do think it'll take probably about that long uh, for the, uh, the bubble to make its way through the distribution channel. Uh, now, your next question about bugging out from a standpoint of bu bugging out into the National Forest. You're right. I'm not a big fan of that. I'm not necessarily not a big fan of the concept of I have a plan to bug out. I think that's absolutely necessary, and I think everybody should have that plan because you don't know when you're going to get, Mr. Spirico, you and your family need to leave for whatever reason, be it uh, an overreach of government or the only logical response of government. If uh, we have a credible threat of a nuclear detonation possibly going off somewhere around my home. Uh, I'm going to be very happy to leave when I'm asked to leave, if the threat is credible. So there are always the potentials to have to leave. Now, but leaving into the forest, you know, man, I, I don't know that I'm ever going to advise you to do that. But let me do it this way. I used to talk to people that wanted to handle venomous snakes. And my thought was always, without proper training, don't do it. Uh, without a mentor, don't do it. But if you're going to do it anyway, here's some things that you can do. So if you're going to do it anyway with this, with the same kind of, you know, make sure you understand I'm giving you uh, a disclaimer, so to speak, Chad. If you're going to do it anyway, then you better cash some stuff. You better start uh, putting aside some food and some supplies. Start learning a territory, learning uh, multiple routes in between uh, multiple points. Uh, that's about the only way that you're going to be able to exist like that during a societal collapse. If you don't have anything pre-planned, if you just, as you say, walk away without anything stashed, uh, it's going to be very difficult. And those need to be things that are both direct food and water supplies, water purification. Montana, plenty of pure water up there. I mean, that's the one thing you do have going for you, except that there should, could be some kind, you know, what, could, what causes a societal collapse? Uh, if it's a ma massive environmental uh, catastrophe and we have bad, you know, bad acid rain, maybe volcanic events or something like that, then water purification is still necessary. My real feeling, and a lot of people that live in the great northwest, and it's a beautiful place to live, and I understand it, is if that's your plan, the, the northwest is not the place to be. You're going to freeze your ass off uh, in those winters up there. And it's going to be very hard to even do things like guerrilla gardening uh, and things like that. Now, there was a very bad guy named Terry Nichols and a partner of his that ran around in those mountains for a long time. Um, and uh, had they not been on the run from the law, if they had not had the entire FBI brief down their neck and try to come after them and find them, if they were just living that way, they'd probably still be up there. And they did a lot of the, you know, growing crops out in the middle of the nowhere and setting up drop points and things like that. And that's how they were able to evade law enforcement so long. So if it works for bad guys, uh, it done with some ethics, it works for good guys too. But if I was gonna, if that was gonna be my only plan, I would go south. 
I absolutely I would go someplace where the winters are milder and the growing seasons, the foraging seasons are longer. But that's just me. If I were you, I would set up a better plan and I would set up some type of uh, a legitimate shelter. Uh, even if it's an RV-based shelter with a little bit of land that you actually own, I think it's a much better long-term plan. But, again, if you're going to handle venomous snakes, I'll tell you to do it with hooks and bags and clamps and never put your hands on them. You still need a mentor uh, with bugging out. If you're going to do it that way, I'll tell you it's the wrong idea. But if you're going to do it, have things in place that you can rely on and depend upon and have at least enough supplies to make it a year. Uh, if you had that, and that's to me it seems like a big risk to, to spread that stuff out and risk it being found or lost or damaged, but it's the only way you would ever really be able to pull it off in a true catastrophe. Uh, let's go ahead and take another question. Yeah. I was wondering if you could talk about rainwater, um, how to separate your uh, water systems and drainage systems, which systems to make gray, which systems to make black, and different uh, storage and recovery options that are available. Well, it's another question where the uh, I cut the beginning off because it was just impossible to understand the caller. I, I think he was trying to talk to me and somebody else at the same time. But the body of the question is pretty understandable, and uh, we're looking at you know gray and black water and how do we deal with those and what uses are there for them. Um, gray water is anything other than water that comes from the toilet, and if you want to do that, you also need to use certain types of detergents for your dishwashing and all that are uh, biodegradable and not harmful will be the best way to go there. So gray water is everything that comes out of your sinks uh, and your shower. And black water is everything that comes out of your toilet. That's the easiest way to, to separate them. If you wanted to go as far as to do this, you could actually set up a toilet that's never used for anything other than urination and one that is used for uh, taking a dump. Let's put it that way pleasantly, I guess, as we can when we talk about subjects like this. Uh, there are people that have set up systems that filter black water and, 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 uh, and do a good job of it, and I look at that like, like this. There's people that have married their sisters, and they haven't had children born with four ears. I'm not doing it, okay? I'm not marrying my sister, and I don't think you should marry your sister, and I think black water is best either going down the sewer if you live connected to the grid, or going through a, um, a, a proper... Uh, septic tank. Um, I just I just think it's easier. It's less risk of any kind of infection, and especially if you're going to rely on a system that you've set up during a, uh, a a time of disaster. You have to understand that some of the things you can get away with while things are good, while things are bad, they increase the risk of, of disease and infection. And diseases uh, and infections that would be very minor uh, in peacetime, so to speak, can be deadly during a catastrophe or a crisis. So I just don't think it's worth the risk. I know people compost human manure and they do it safely. And again, I know other people do this, but again, I know people marry their sisters in some parts of the world. Bucketheads, right? I ain't doing it even if they got away with it, right? So, so there's on the black water. On gray water, I think it's great for irrigation. And it's probably something that most people will need the help of a plumber for uh, because you're dealing with houses that are built on, let's say, slab foundations or whatever, and you're going to have to be able to get at that pipe and tie into it and, and make sure that you're separating the gray and the black. If you're building a new home, it's really easy to do it. And if you uh, have something like, let's say, a mobile home, it's pretty easy to do because it's easy to get access under the floor. Uh, but if you want to do gray water, you need to separate it from everything else. 
want a great source of gray water that doesn't really need a lot of separation from everything else, that can just be run off of its, uh, if its, if its output, so to speak, is your washing machine. Your washing machine is also a source of gray water, and they make kits that instead of that little spout that goes into your drainage system of your house, you just run it off into a tank. It fills that tank up, and that tank acts as an irrigation. The thing with gray water is you really don't want to be watering things like vegetables with it. It's really not what it's for. You either want to use it to water ornamentals, or to water like fruit trees where the plants themselves, the, the part that's eaten is very high up in the air uh, from the ground where there's no splash effect or anything like that uh, where any kind of chemical problems could be there. Even though it's really kind of minimal, the risk, uh, that's the proper and safe way to use uh, gray water. Gray water also should be run when you use it for irrigation and pipes that are purple. Uh, not because I think purple is a pretty color or anything, but it is the universal identifier of gray water, uh, international uh, color for gray water irrigation. So that if you sold the house, if it ended up in somebody else's ha hands, what have you, anybody that saw that piping would know uh, that it's from gray water. And your most efficient and, and safest use of gray water irrigation is going to be using that, that purple pipe with drip irrigation so that it's actually very slowly trickling out onto the ground. So I think gray water use for irrigation Great idea, black water, not so much. Uh, and as far as setting it up, you probably want to get the help of a qualified plumber, especially for most houses, because of the way the current plumbing systems are run, with the exception of uh, the gray water distribution from your washing machine, because that's pretty simple to set up. And there's a great video of an Aussie guy uh, on permaculture that has that in it. I've linked to it before. I'll link to it again from today's show notes. Let's go ahead and take another question. Thanks for that one. It was a great one. Hey, Jack, this is Tim in St. Louis. Um, I just listened to your show about the Icelandic volcano and its effect on uh, travel in Europe and other places. Some of the places, I'm, I work in the medical field and uh, specifically in the cardiology realm, and it's starting to feel the effects of that volcanic, uh, volcanic uh, eruption here uh, as there is only a few uh, laboratories that make uh, the thallium that they use for nuclear stress tests here uh, that, that we uh do in this country, and right now cardiologists are having difficulty. Uh, they're having to handpick and uh, which uh, patients get this test because the thallium uh, that is made in a laboratory in Europe is not available. So I just want to pass that along to you. Uh, it is affecting us, even though it's uh, very, very far away. Thanks for the show. Appreciate it. Bye. Well, folks, I don't have a huge uh, amount to comment on that because I think it pretty much speaks for itself. And it's an older call. This call came in also about a month ago, I guess, and I just got to uh, bring it on the air now. But I put it on mainly because, hey, I, I wanted you to uh, just see a real-world example of something that happens halfway around the world that doesn't seem like it really affects us at all and has a direct effect on people right here in the United States, specifically uh, in the medical industry. And... Uh, I just don't think people generally understand the interconnected nature of the world at this point. So basically we've got people that need stress tests uh, for cardiac reasons. And now we have doctors that have to go through and go um, score these people, I guess. You know, it's probably how they would do it on a 1 to 10 scale, who's most important. And we test all the 10s, and if uh, all the 10s get tested and there's anything left, then we can do all the 9.5s. And if all the 9.5s get done and uh, there's any of this Valium left, then we can do the 9s. Uh, and I guess if you're a 7, you're screwed. You just have to wait. 
Uh, and hopefully that, that speed bump has been worked out now. But this one little volcano, it's a little volcano that went up in, uh, in Iceland, folks, a small one. Absolutely a small one. And it's had this effect. So what happens with a bigger disaster or two or three disasters that go on simultaneously across the globe? Uh, and then aggravated by something domestic here at home. This also was kind of timely that I listened to it and screened it today. Last night I watched uh, a DVR episode of a show that comes on Discovery called Mega Disasters. And uh, it was about what would happen if Mount Rainier in uh, near Seattle, 60 miles from Seattle, Washington, uh, erupted. And what would happen from the Lahars. And a Lahar is the, uh, the mud flow from a volcano. I think people don't get what mud flow from a volcano really is like. It's not just a mudslide. It's a wall, a tidal wave of mud at the consistency of wet concrete that is, you know, higher than buildings. It just demolishes, completely wipes out buildings. Their estimates, and this is with some advanced warning and some, um, evacuation, uh, is casualties numbering between 36 to 40,000 for injuries and deaths in the number of 18,000, and that's with evacuation. Uh, so if that happens, what's that going to do to the distribution change throughout the United States? Uh, Seattle is one of the biggest ports in the United States. There's all types of interconnectedness that I don't think people realize how exposed we are uh, in a modern world where so many things are dependent upon things, not just outside your local economy, not just outside your state economy, but outside your national economy, outside of our hemisphere. In this case, you have people that are now waiting longer for critical medical testing because of supplies from Europe. And it's a blessing in some ways that we've shrunk the world down to where we can share resources across the globe. But it's a curse the minute anything gets in the way of them because we have lost that independent spirit and that independent redundancy uh, that used to make us one of the strongest nations on the planet. Now I think we've become one of the most dependent nations on the planet so there you go. Um, again, I don't have much else to say about it. Thanks for that call. Thanks for bringing that up. Let's go ahead and take another call. Hey, Jack. It's Gus from New Jersey. Uh, my question for today is portable battery packs or jump packs, as they uh, call them on the Internet. Uh, just your thoughts on what type of units uh, you would recommend. I like to keep something in the back of the trunk that has uh, that jumping capability, but also an air compressor, uh, but also dual purpose when I go camping, I can have use that to power up a radio uh, or even charge a laptop. Uh, just, just your thoughts on that. Thanks for a great show. Well, I can tell you what I have in both of my, actually all three of my vehicles. I bought one as soon as we bought the third vehicle uh, to go in there, and it is the Wagon 400 watt power dome EX and uh, it's got everything you've just asked for it's got a built in air compressor it's actually it's, you don't need to power a radio because it's got a radio built into it uh, it's got a 12 VDC output port to run uh, anything that would run that way it's got a built in inverter and I think it's it, they, they've got two actual uh, AC outlets I don't think you're going to run two of anything on there really because uh, most things are, that you're going to plug in like that combined will probably put you over 400 watts. Uh, it'll jump start your vehicle. Uh, you can bring it in the house and use it to power a laptop or to power up a laptop. The beautiful thing is it, it's designed to be able to be charged by your vehicle. 
So uh, if you're out camping, for instance, if you use it mostly at night, which is when you would probably use it, I guess maybe during the day you might use it to run a t uh, fan uh, in your tent, which would be kind of cool. Uh, but, you know, as long as you take some time off during the day and run it back out to your vehicle and charge it back up, uh, you can keep it going for several days out there. Uh, and it's got a pretty good life expectancy. I'll tell you why I bought it. Uh, I heard from no less than about six different uh, members of the audience that owned them and thought that they were outstanding. And I actually asked the audience in the past the same question you're asking me now. And uh, that's why I settled on that unit. There was a, a 600-watt unit out there. Uh, I can't remember who makes it. Doracell also brands it, but it's made by somebody else. I'm trying to remember what it, who, who makes it. It's somebody with an X. Uh, Antra... Ant Extract, Extrax or something like that. I think a 600 water jump, watt jump starter. Um, it does pretty much the same thing, but it's got supposedly more battery life and, and uh, more functionality, a little bit more. Well, because it's got 600 watts, it's got the ability to run more. Here's what I've heard and the reviews on Amazon when I read them back when I made my decision trying to back it up. The people that are happy with that unit are very happy with that unit, but as many people are happy... There's many people that aren't happy. Apparently, it's a unit that, you know, you either get a lemon or you get a great thing. Maybe, like, I did a review of the Cato Voyager radio in the past, and I've heard from so many people that say, hey, man, I love mine. And I've heard from a lot of people that say, hey, I got one as a piece of crap. So I look at the Cato Voyager and this uh, Xantrex thing pretty much the same way. And, the, again, the Duracell uh, version of it is a private label. I figured that out when I was researching these myself. Uh, so you're going to ha have the same crapshoot. Uh, somebody gets one and uses it for five years and loves it. Somebody else gets one and out of the box, it won't hold a charge for more than 15 minutes, even after two days of initial charging. So I would stay away from that. And, again, I have been very happy with... Uh, with my uh, Power Dome EX. Again, I'll put a link in the show notes today where you guys can check that out. These things sell on Amazon for like $106. And if you do not have one, I'm going to tell you, you should you know, go through the link today and get one. And I'll tell you, yes, I'll make about 5 bucks if you buy it through my link. Uh, so if you don't buy it through my link and you go out and buy it in the store, fine. I don't care. But these belong in your car, especially those of you with teenagers um, that might have to rely on some stranger in a parking lot to jumpstart them. You get this thing, you set it up in your vehicle, you keep it charged, and if that vehicle needs a jumpstart, uh, you jumpstart yourself, and you don't rely on some strange person, uh, and you have backup power, and it makes your vehicle basically into a backup power generator. So I, I cannot recommend these things highly enough. And here's the funny thing. Uh, this was the last question that came in today off of Facebook. Uh, when I did the alert that said you got 25 minutes to call it in, and this guy left this question about two seconds before the power went out here at the house, so you must have ESP, buddy. Thank you. Nice question. And let's go ahead and take yet another question. Hi, Jack. This is Ryan from Durham, Oregon. Love the show. A couple questions. Uh, what would be a couple of good books you would recommend for somebody uh, just getting into uh, sort of this uh, survival and, and uh, entry-level type things, get the mindset, especially something that might might have inspired you or has uh, helped you along the way. And the uh, second question would be, how does one uh, go about calculating how much food if they want to, uh, they, they would need for 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, or a year? I've been building up my, my pantry stock the last couple months, but I uh, don't really know exactly how much I have uh, built up. So, is it a calorie? Do you count the calories? Do you 
figure out how many meals you have, and so forth. Thanks a lot. Love the show. There's uh, quite a few really great or great questions there. First of all, on the books. First of all, I have a book list that I maintain at the survivalpodcast.com. If you go there in the center column, the first group of stuff you'll see says pages. They have things like about us, our advertising policy, and articles and things like that. But about fourth down, you'll see book list. If you click on that, you'll see all the books that I recommend on the site. And the reality is I have a ton of books uh, that I need to add to this list. Uh, one thing about my book list, I want you to know this, folks. Every single book on my list is either on my bookshelf uh, or since I've gotten a Kindle, it's in my Kindle. Uh, I don't recommend a book without reading it. Now, on your question, um, let's say if you said, what are the three best books for what to do? You know, and setting up redundancy and being prepared. I would say that the first one I would recommend is my good buddy James Stevens' book, Making the Best of Basics, and you can order that from my book list. Uh, and again, I make a small commission on this, folks. If you want to buy it without going through my site, I don't care. I'm just telling you that it's there, uh, and I do appreciate when you when you make a purchase anyway that you, you help out the show by purchasing through my link. Uh, but Making the Best of Basics has sold over 800,000 copies, and it is everything you need to do in a calm, sane, rational way before anything goes wrong. That's really what I would tell you. If there's a weakness to making the best of basics, it doesn't tell you a whole lot to do after something goes wrong and you haven't prepared it all. It tells you how to prepare, which I think is the most practical uh, of all the books out there for how to do that. And that's what I focus on is preparing so you don't end up trying to figure out how to build a telephone with uh, three toothpicks and a, uh, a safety pin or whatever. right? So you actually are ready for disaster when it comes. If you wanted to have a book that told you what to do, no matter how you ended up, if you wanted a book that would you know, give you uh, the ability to try to do the things that you see Les Stroud or Bear Grylls uh, or soon-to-be Dave Canterbury do on television, um, then I would recommend that you get yourself, there's a book by Tom Brown, it's actually two of his books together, and it's uh, a guide to city and suburban survival and a field guide kind of combined. And uh, I think that's the best book for everything's gone wrong and you're not prepared and you have to make do with what you have and you need kind of a guide to do it and you're on your own. Um, there's also a book uh, that I think uh, is probably the best book if you want to know not just what to do and what could go wrong, but if you want to know what government, uh, you know, what government groups you can rely on, who to call when something goes wrong, who and who, to, what to expect and what not to expect from them. Uh, and that book would be "What to Do When the Shit Hits the Fan" by David Black. If I was going to build an initial prepper library and I wanted it to be well-rounded, one book that told me about things like FEMA and what they do and what they don't do and uh, and just made me aware of all the disasters. It's pretty easy to read and it's small and can fit into a bug-out bag. Uh, it's a little kit book. That's what I would go for is What to Do When the Shit Hits the Fan by David Black. That's that book. I wanted a book to get me ready in advance without all kinds of paranoia, Making the Best of Basics by James Talmud Stevens, and if I wanted a book that would uh, that would help me out if I had screwed up or I was just short on things and I wanted kind of a technical field guide manual, I would go with the combo guide from Tom Brown. Last but not least, if I wanted to inspire somebody, if I wanted to put a book in someone's hand, and not so much what to do, and there's some what to do in it and how to do it, but mostly I wanted to take somebody and wake them up. And I didn't want to do it with fan fiction I didn't want to do it with something like One Second After. I wanted to do it with real-world nonfiction from a guy that knows. 
uh, I would give them the book called Survival, How a Culture of Preparedness Can Save You and Your Family from Disasters. Uh, and that was written by Lieutenant General uh, Russell Honore. And if its name sounds familiar, it's because uh, after Hurricane Katrina and right as we were leading up into Rita and after the government had totally, local and federal, had totally screwed up the relief efforts from Hurricane Katrina and they wanted somebody to come fix it, they took this old general and said maybe the military knows how to fix this. And they brought this man in and he fixed it and he made it right and he brought it back together and he was the guy for the job and he handled the uh, the lead up and the uh, aftermath of Hurricane Rita and he did an outstanding job in it and he saw the carnage from both of those storms uh, firsthand and that's what led him after retirement to write this book. He's also a no nonsense, no bullshit, pull no punches kind of guy. If you really want to remember this guy, if I'm really going to jog your memory, I'll tell you what happened, and you, maybe you'll remember this. Uh, right as we were getting ready for Rita, they knew it was going to land, they kind of knew where it was going to hit, and the press was asking questions about what to do now. How were they going to make sure that people didn't end up from Rita the way they did with Katrina, and all the uh, Katrina hysteria was still going on. And uh, he basically said, hey, look, we have a plan this time. And then one of the reporters, after over and over asking the same crap, says, well, if that's the case, then why didn't you do it right with Hurricane Katrina? And this gentleman on national news said, you people are stuck on stupid. You're stuck on stupid. I've said what I had to say. And he went on about his business, and he did his job. Uh, and if I wanted to inspire somebody to realize that we do need to be prepared, that we have to shift the entire culture of the United States back to self-reliance, back to independence, and back to preparedness, this is the book that I would put in their hand because the gentleman that wrote it has absolutely undenied uh, credibility and should resonate with anybody other than the absolute ostrich that has their head so far in the sand if they inhale rapidly they're going to die of uh, drowning in sand when it enters their lungs. I think that if there's any book that will reach the, the, the uninformed as to why this is important and why it's sane and rational, it's going to be that book. Again, it's uh, Survival, How a Cultural Preparedness Can Save You and Your Family from Disasters uh, by Lieutenant General Russell Honore, United States Army, retired. Uh, all of those books are in my book list. Now, how do you know how much food you need to survive 30 days, 60 days, 90 days to make sure your nutritional profile is right? I did a, a project on YouTube. It's on my YouTube channel called the Five Gallon Bucket Project. I never quite finished it. It's one of those things that I need to finish, uh, and everything's there. And uh, we basically, I just need to run back through the nutritional profile, uh, put that stuff in some mylar, seal the buckets up, and then talk about what goes with it. But if even where it's at now, if you watch it, you'll learn exactly how to do what you're asking. There's a couple things that you need to look at. One is your daily caloric requirements. And you're looking at, and I know this is going to sound high, this is going to sound high, but to really maintain in a stressful situation, uh, for women you're looking at at least 2,200 calories, and for men, 2,800 calories at least. Those are kind of minimums. And I know that if you wanted to lose weight or you didn't want to be fat or whatever, you'd want to eat less calories than that. But understand in a disaster, it's, 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 you're more, in more stress, you're doing more work, you're dealing with more problems, uh, and, and you actually have higher caloric requirements in many situations. A survival diet, you could definitely get by on 2,000 calories a day. Definitely. Probably 1,800. You'll survive. You won't die. You'll lose a lot of weight. You won't be real healthy, but, uh, but, uh, you'll, you'll get by. You could probably get by on 15, 1,600 calories a day. Survive. Again, survive. And people that don't think that's enough, 
Um, in some ways, you're right, and that's why I'm making the higher uh, uh, assessment. But in many ways, you're wrong. Do you know how many places in the world that people never get more than 1,500 calories a day and live to be old, miserable but live to be very old people because the people around them are completely starving and they're lucky to get those 1,500 calories? So it's up to you where you want to set that caloric requirement. Again, I'm advising you for females, 2,200, uh, for males, 2,800. So the caloric assessment's easy because you take all the food and you look on the back and it has nutritional information. And if you're storing rice or beans or any kind of loose food, you look up and you figure out, I have this many pounds or cups or ounces, and that's you know calories per pound, calories per ounce, and you figure it out. So you take all of it up and you have, you know, let's say you have enough people in your home that you roughly need 10,000 calories a day, um, and you uh, are, are trying to put away enough food. Uh, to last for 30 days, well, then you need 300,000 calories. I, it, it really can't be any more simple uh, than that. So that's how you do the caloric assessment. Your nutritional profile information, though, is very important. One of, there, there's two deficiencies that will kill you, and a third that won't. Um, you, you really need some carbohydrates in your life, but you can be very deficient in carbohydrate, and you will never, ever, ever die. You, you can live on protein and fat alone, especially if you have some supplemental vitamin and minerals uh, in the form of, of pills, which I recommend you have some, you know, some good quality multivitamin mineral pills as part of your preps. It make that part of your day. You know, every day when I wake up and have my first cup of coffee, I take a vitamin. Right? It's, it's low-cost insurance to make sure that you're getting the right nutritional profile. So with that, you can survive on meat and fat. Of course, meat and fat are not the best storing items. In fact, they're the worst storing items from an expense standpoint and a longevity standpoint, unless you go to things like you know freeze-dried mountain house and things like that. So the place that you tend to become deficient is fat and protein in your preps. If you try to live on nothing but rice and beans and people tell you that's a complete nutritional profile, bullshit. Rice and beans are not... A complete nutritional profile. That's vegetarian propagandist bullshit. And even many of the proteins that are technically in uh, beans and rice can't be absorbed apart from supplemental fat. The body won't absorb them. That's why you have places where people eat beans and rice and have protein deficiency diseases. You do not, I'll say it one more time, you do not get a complete nutritional profile from rice and beans. It is not true. Okay, I almost want to say it again, but I'm not going. I'm going to leave it there. Will you die quickly? No, there's some protein there. You'll be okay. But you need to make sure you bring in some supplemental protein, and you need to make sure you bring in some fat. To me, an optimum diet, uh, especially in a situation like this, about your, your fat calories should, about 20% of your calories should come from fat. Now, that's not 20% of good grams of, you know, you have 100 grams and, uh, and 20 grams like that, fat calories. So if you have... Uh, 2,000 calorie diet, uh, you should be getting about 400 fat calories, which isn't hard to do. In fact, most people go over that in a modern American diet. Uh, you should then, uh, at minimum, a 40-40 split, 40% carbohydrates, 40% protein. Uh, that's going to be difficult to do with a lot of self-stored stuff unless you go into canned goods and bring in some meats and things like that as well. Uh, Yoder's canned bacon, great source of that. If you end up with, uh, instead of a 40-40 split, you end up with 50% from carbs, 30% protein, don't have a real problem with that. 
uh, you're going to probably be just fine. But I would actually, in an optimum diet, uh, I'm a big believer in the low-carbohydrate approach, maybe 20 to 25% of your calories coming from carbohydrates. Not very realistic for your preps, but day-to-day eating, that's the way I think. So it's basic math. Making sure that you have enough of a nutritional profile, enough of the things that people eat, and then a raw caloric uh, calculation to make sure that you are able to actually feed people. And a great way to do that is just drop it all in Excel and uh, run a basic inventory. Now, it doesn't have to be that complicated. You eat every day without thinking that involved. This is to be sure. This is to be absolutely sure that 30 days is 30 days. But you know when you wake up, if you eat breakfast every day, what makes up breakfast, what makes up lunch, what makes up dinner. You can actually count meals in your head. I mean, moms do it every day, right? They have six kids to feed and some big families, and they know I need this and this and this and this to make dinner. So if you do it that way, it'll work pretty well. Up to about 30 to 60 days, you can sort that out. When you get beyond that for food storage, you really got to sit down and do the math. Because if you're going to depend on it, uh, you need to know. Because here's the deal. You might be looking at a situation where it's expected that you'll be back to normal in 30 days. And you have 60 days or more worth of food. It's not that critical. Uh, you're rationing. But if you might be in a long term, if we have a really big disaster, and you have what you believe is four months worth of food, uh, you may choose to ration beyond your initial plan if it looks like a very long disaster. If you believe you have eight months and you really have six or five or four, you may not make the right choice in your rationing, and you may be more likely to run out of food quicker or run into deficiencies in certain parts of it quicker. So I think if you're looking at really long-term storage, make sure you do that math. Great question. Let's go ahead and take another one. Hey, Jack. This is Jeff from South Carolina. I had a quick question about maybe growing plants or uh, fruits and vegetables in pots strictly. Uh, I'm moving out of my house pretty soon and I kind of want to keep everything uh, with the yard just, you know, the way everybody else likes it there. But uh, just anything, uh, any kind of specific advice for growing any kind of fruits or vegetables or anything in pots. Um, I've seen your strawberry pot video and uh, that was really good. I didn't know if you had anything else along those lines, uh, something that can maybe be easily moved when we uh, pick up and head out. I appreciate the show, Jack. Thanks for all your hard work. Oh, good question there, and that will be the final one of the day. Um, on that, uh, you can really grow anything in a container. Yeah, I have a strawberry pot, and there's a video on how to put that together in the Member Support Brigade. For you, you guys that are members, look on the videos page, and you'll, you'll see that video, and you can download it and see how to construct one yourself instead of paying 75 bucks to buy a prefabricated thing. And uh, strawberries are good for that. The reality is you can grow almost anything in containers. Uh, I've seen people do corn in containers. I think that's insane, but I, you could go that far. You could definitely grow beans. You could grow peas. Uh, some of the things, especially if you want long-term uh, perennial use, though, that are ideal are patio peaches, uh, the peaches that are designed to be dwarf and grow in pots. They actually get quite large when planted in the ground, though, and able to develop a larger root system. Uh, so I think they're great. I have two of those uh, on my uh, on my back deck, and the plan is just that. When we leave here, instead of leaving them in the ground, we put the pots into uh, the trailer, we take them up to Arkansas, we plant them in the ground, and they become permanent plants that, that are up there. They'll never be as big as a large peach tree, but they'll get much bigger than they have been in their pots. Uh, we'll have to make sure we don't get what's called circling and girdling root syndrome, which means basically we have to prune the roots, make sure they're all spread out, and make sure that the roots don't eventually grow around the tree 
And that, what can happen with a tree that's been in a pot for a long time is your roots go out, they hit the pot, and they start growing in a circle. And eventually that circle can tighten up. And when the tree expands and really starts to grow when you put it in the ground, the root actually grows into the trunk of the tree. Even uh, underground that will happen and basically cut off the nutrient supply to the tree. The tree strangles itself to death. So that's something to be aware of. From a vegetable standpoint, some of the things that work really well, one of the great things, and I've just started really doing this heavily this year, is peppers. Um, like green peppers, uh, jalapeno peppers, Marconi, I don't care what kind of pepper it is. Peppers are great. Here's something I just learned about uh, peppers about a year and a half ago. Peppers are not an annual. Peppers are grown as an annual in the United States because it gets too damn cold and it kills them. Where peppers grow native, peppers are a perennial. If you prune your pepper little, your peppers basically, uh, you know, when I grew peppers in Pennsylvania, we had a short growing season. I never really understood. Peppers basically turn into a little shrub, like a little bush. Down here in uh, Texas, I mean, I end up with my poblano peppers uh, by the end of the growing season, the ones in the ground, three foot high. Three foot high. Seriously. I, I've had poblanos. I've had jalapenos get two and a half feet high. Close to three feet. And spread out, uh, you know, a square foot of, of spread uh, with multiple branches. Well, you prune that down a little bit, and you bring those suckers into uh, inside. You protect them from the cold, not just at freezing. And through the winter, you want to protect them anytime it's going to go below about 40. Well, if you have a couple pots of peppers that you can either greenhouse protect or bring in the house, whatever, have to heat the greenhouse when it goes down below freezing, obviously, but you'll overwinter your peppers, put them back out in the springtime, and they just go right to town. You don't have to wait for them to grow up from them little bitty plants anymore. So ideal for taking with you, but an ideal use of a plant that we think of as an annual that can actually be a perennial. I thought that was really cool. Lettuces, chard, spinach... Uh, anything like that, any kind of green, whether it's a summer hardy or winter hardy green, ideal for growing in containers. Ground cherries in a large container grow wonderfully. Ground cherries look sort of like a tomato, but they're not a tomato, and they don't get that dreaded tomato blight. Uh, they grow little paper lanterns on them, kind of like a tomatillo does, but they get a, about the size of a cherry tomato, and you pop that little paper, papery husk off them, and you've got something that kind of tastes to me like a cross between a pineapple and, and a cherry and a tomato, and they're just wonderful little things. Uh, those do well in tomato, uh, into containers. I don't think you can over... I think they kind of reach a life expectancy on an annual basis. I don't think they'll perennial for you, even if you bring them in, but you've got that. Uh, so those are all really cool things that you can plant in containers, but just don't let container hem you in. Understand that anything you can plant in the garden, as long as the container's large enough, you can plant it in a container. I've grown orach in containers. I've grown smaller species of amaranth in containers, especially like the Hopi red dye. And I, when I grow that in containers, I don't let it grow full size. I get it about a foot tall, and I go ahead and cut it off, and I braise it uh, for like Chinese stir-fry. Great for that. Uh, there's all types of things you can do in containers. Again, don't let the container hold you back. Just the big thing, good quality organic potting soil. Don't go cheap, and don't dig dirt up out of the ground and use it in your containers. Use a high-quality potting soil. Also understand you're not going to have as much of the organic activity going on that you do in the soil with soil organisms and stuff. You will be surprised what ends up in a pot, especially if you set it on the ground. I've got pots that have earthworms in them because they crawled up through the little holes, the drain holes, where it made ground contact, and they're living in there, and they're doing their job in there just like they do in the earth. So that can work. You could probably add earthworms, I guess, if you wanted to, uh, to your pots. Uh, and you could do some direct composting. Another thing you can do to kind of help that along, especially if you have some uh, organi or, uh, organism activity, 
mulch the hell out of your, your, your containers, folks. About an inch and a half to two inches minimum of mulch. Pull the mulch back, and instead of composting to a compost bin, this is good for you apartment gardeners, too. Take your little compost, you know, your potato peelings or whatever, put them right in contact with the soil, and put the mulch back over them. They'll compost right into the soil in small amounts. They'll compost way faster than a compost bin. And a lot of the off-gas that has a high nutrient value that escapes in a compost bin because it's covered up by the mulch will actually be forced into the soil, and you'll get a better feeding effect. So... Those are some things you can do. Also have a plan for when you move, how you're going to move all that stuff. I have a huge amount of containers. Uh, we have a trailer that we are going to use for some initial moving. Uh, so we have a place for those all to go. They'll probably go a few weeks in advance of our move. I'm in the same place you are, though, right now without wanting to dig up anything else on the ground, uh, doing everything that's new anyway in containers. So uh, it does work. It is a good plan and good for you for thinking that way. And with that, I think I'm going to wrap up today. I want to, um, again, remind you, uh, get on my Facebook fan page if you have not already done so, if you use Facebook. Uh, just just uh, go to the main website. You'll see find us on Facebook, uh, a little icon there with the Facebook logo and the Val head. And uh, click on that and join our fan page because I'm going to do a lot more shows like this. And I'm going to do a lot more kind of morning announcements of the show. That, you know, what I'm going to do is show like this. Hey, I'm going to start the show in about 30 minutes. You have 30 minutes to get your calls in. I like taking the calls that came in right before the show. I think that's the closest thing we can do to live right now. I am thinking about doing some, just some announcements here at the end. I'm thinking about doing some live shows in the future across a thing called Ustream, which will be by video. I'll still put the audio out on iTunes and the site, but maybe I'll actually you know, uh, live feed those, and I'll be able to take live questions from you by chat, uh, instant message, that type of thing during that type of show. I'm hesitant to do that, one, because I like you know some mornings at 6 a.m., and I'm sitting here in my boxers, doing the show, uh, and some mornings it's 9.30 before I get started, and some days like today, I don't get started till afternoon, so doing a live show kind of necessitates setting a time, uh, but I might just not set a time, I might just you know put out on Twitter and Facebook, show goes live in 15 minutes at Ustream. Uh, I won't do that every day. It's more work. I gotta, you know, put at least a little bit of effort into my personal appearance there. Uh, so, uh, not gonna happen all the time, but maybe once or twice a month we'll do that. And I'm trying to bring more and more special things. Ron Hood is gonna be coming back at least once a month from now on, so that's gonna be cool. And again, I'm trying to really reach out to you guys and communicate more and bring more of you into the show with shows like we did today. Remember, that's because it's all about you. The revolution is you. The choices are yours. And the lifestyle that you live is up to you. Notice that when I answer certain questions, say, like Chad's question about something I wouldn't do. I didn't say don't do it. I said I wouldn't do it. If you're going to do it, here's the best advice I can give you. And that's how I feel about everything, folks. I think that your plan needs to be your plan. All I can do is give you all the information that I can gather from personal experience, from real world, real you know, hard tax things that I've been through, uh, from situations I've been in by because they just happened to me, and situations I've put myself in to learn, and research. And bring those two together and bring you the, the full monty of information. You grab it, you make it your own, and you decide that you're going to be part of this revolution that is the new America. And the new America isn't about who we pull the voting lever for. The new America is about changing ourselves. And by changing ourselves, eventually we change our neighbors. And eventually by changing our neighbors, not by will, not by force, not by demand, but by example, maybe we change this country. Maybe we take things back. I hope you have a great weekend. This has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life. Time to get to up or even if they don't. There's a better way to do this.
Nobody up there cares.